is persuasion ethical? Yeah, exactly. Can you just tell me the answer? I'd love that. I'm ready to write <laughs> yeah, it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can. I don't think I can manage that. This is a new angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in this week. This week, we're having what I would call an experiment in conversation. You know, as a marketing professor, something I've been grappling with over the past few years is just the increasing uh, proliferation of data, data science, data engineering in our economy and uh, all the ethical implications that that brings with it. I I grapple with it in the classroom and beyond. And uh, I have conversations about this frequently with my dear friend and colleague, John Chandler, a data scientist and a marketing professor here at the College of Business and a big part of our Masters of Science and Business Analytics curriculum. John and I talk about these issues and never really get anywhere. So we decided to bring in Christopher Preston, a colleague of ours in the Department of Philosophy. Christopher has been on the podcast previously, and he brings a philosophical perspective to how to get our heads around these sorts of issues. We open up about 30 doors in this conversation. I'm not sure we close any, but it was an attempt by the three of us to make a good faith effort to interrogating the issue of what are our responsibilities as educators in preparing students uh, to deal with the proliferation of data in the economy and beyond. So I look forward to bringing that episode right now. Okay, so we're here today with uh, Professor John Chandler, Professor Christopher Preston. Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so Christopher, you this is a big deal, being a repeat offender on a new angle. <laughs> I know, I hope I can manage. And John, you were actually, a uh, little known fact is that you were part of the, the beta test of the podcast. The You're bleeding part, edge of a new the, angle. The exclusive version of the pod that's uh, accessible only by enrolled students here at the University of Montana. So uh, thank you for coming back. It's great to be here. Anyway, so this conversation has been had at various sort of iterations by the three of us or the two of us in pairs. Basically, what we want to talk about today is, you know, as, a, as, a, as, as an educator, as an educator on marketing and business, it sort of feels like uh, this is a fraught time for the practice of marketing, for business, uh, all this stuff with what social media companies are doing, uh, with data, with manipulative techniques that get consumers to buy or, or vote or do different things that maybe they don't have total agency over. Uh, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And uh, Christopher, your philosopher, you study environmental things, you study ethics as well. And John, you're a data scientist sort of teaching and executing on the practice of this stuff. So... You know, John, I guess we'll start with you. As, as you've sort of uh, been building out your skill set, uh, not only in the classroom, but as a practitioner of data science, what are some of the ethical issues that are on your mind um, as, as you sort of work at the interface of, of theory and practice? Yeah, I mean, I think when I think about ethics, and I'm interested, Christopher, in kind of hearing your perspective, knowing a lot more about ethics than I do. You know, when I think about it, there are certain sort of sins of commission, right? So lying with statistics, making misleading graphics, um, data sort of, you know, p-hacking or something like that, you know, fishing through the data. Doing things to mislead. Exactly. Active misleading. 
then, you know, in a separate category, we have work that I think most people would consider sort of an ethical practice of data science. You know, you're letting the data speak for itself. You're being honest, uh, an honest broker of that sort of epistemological aspect, like what can the data tell us? But in, a, in the service of businesses that may have sort of questionable ethics themselves or may have a questionable sort of role in society. So uh, one of my one of the books that I teach in this is Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction. Uh-huh. And she, book. yeah, it's, re- it's really great. And she, uh, you know, describes these weapons of math destruction, which she says have to be, um, in order to qualify opaque, operate at a large scale and have the ability to cause harm. And so you can look at the way in which marketers use Facebook and check all three of those boxes. But her chapter on marketing looks at essentially what I would consider sort of predatory marketing and for-profit institutions attempting to prey on um, you know, people who are susceptible to those messages where they're extracting you know, money and resources from these people and not giving very much back. And so I feel like that she has defined one side of this continuum. If you are practicing ethical data science for a business that is unethical, she you know, says that's not ethical. That makes sense, but we can move back from that, right? So if you are helping people uh, or if you are marketing to people to buy cheap pieces of plastic crap that they don't need, is that ethical? If you are marketing to people to cause them to click on ads and go visit a website regardless of whether or not they're a qualified audience, is that ethical? And so these are sort of the questions that I'm sort of struggling with in the classroom and in the practice. I mean, what do you think about when you even think of a college of business, Christopher? Do you think we're off our rocker or is like, what should we or shouldn't we be teaching? Well, I'm an environmental philosopher. And so marketing just at the get-go raises <laughs> yeah, my hackles. I'm like, do we need more stuff? Do we need yeah. it better marketed? Um, but I think you touched on something uh, important right at the beginning is there's a relationship between a buyer and a seller. And ideally, um, the buyer uh, is consenting. Uh, It's like a a free, transparent, open kind of relationship. Uh, I think the problem with big data is that, uh, as John mentioned, big data is obscure. uh, And and the buyer doesn't really know exactly what they are consenting to when they're clicking, what they're committing to. And so it becomes more and more impossible to offer anything that uh, approximates to real consent. And the more obscure it is, the more problematic that is. Right. And I think that it's not only the people who are being marketed to and who are clicking and buying who are participating in this transaction. But if you're a Facebook user, you form part of the reference set for how Facebook improves those algorithms. So whether you receive a you know, message paid for by you know, Russians to influence our elections or not, your data is contributing to the algorithm's ability to target those messages. And there you're talking about something that's completely uh, opaque. Yeah, can you just sort of just walk us through that process of how Facebook does what it does in that instance? Yeah, I mean, one way to think about it uh, is sort of in terms of like birds of a feather flock together. And so when, you know, you see somebody who has responded to a piece of messaging, you can go out and look for people who are similar to that person. Mm-hmm. And Facebook is constantly trying to improve. Uh, and this you know, goes for Google and Amazon, uh, and to a lesser extent, I think Apple and Microsoft. Uh, they are constantly looking for ways to improve 
their ability to measure similarity between users and understand who is likely to respond to things. So they will look and see, oh, you know, Christopher and I both like hiking. We both like mountain biking. One of us likes marketing and the other likes environmental philosophy and try to figure out which ones of those are important when they go to sell us, you know, a mountain bike helmet. Right. And when you say important, you mean predictive exactly. of an outcome. Yeah. Right. Um, so, I mean, I can say a lot more about what Facebook is doing, sort of mining that data. But the main thing is, is that Facebook is trying to build the most detailed data set it can about every individual on Earth. Yeah. And Facebook is, is not the only one. I mean, Absolutely there's not. There's many big companies that are sort of in a race to do this better than the other one. Yeah, although, you know, in the world of marketing, and this may be kind of too down in the weeds for our ethics discussion. We like the weeds. <laughs> in, in the world of marketing, we, we have seen this emergence of Google and Facebook as a duopoly uh, in the space. They are too big to be acquired by the other, uh, but they are acquiring uh, competitors or putting them out of business. And so you have these two companies that have built the richest data set on individuals. Um, I think, you know, someone from Amazon would argue with me on this sure. point. Um, and they are, you know, their business model is becoming more and more, write me a check and I will give you customers and don't ask any questions. And so it's not even transparent with the actual seller, right? It is now there's an intermediary that is obscuring kind of what's going on. And along with that, being a duopoly, there are, there, you know, there are two games in town. Yep. If you want to advertise online, there's there's basically two places that are worth putting your money. Right now, about 70 cents of every dollar spent online goes to one of those two companies. Yeah. And that's increasing. That's an unreal statistic. Yeah. And Amazon gets what percentage of the rest? Uh, that's a great question. So this is online advertising. So oh, Amazon okay. historically yeah, has yeah. not spent a lot. Uh, in terms of uh, transactions, I can't remember off the top of my head what the re revenue number is for Amazon, but it's breathtaking. And some crazy percentage of online traffic goes through an Amazon product. Oh, yeah, with yeah. AWS, that's all another. Yeah. Gosh, so, Christopher, I, I don't even know how to get my head around how to think about this from an ethical standpoint. You know, I, I think about my role as a marketing professor, and I teach at the beginning of the funnel, the beginning of the experience, some of these fundamentals of, of thinking of marketing as a way to engineer an advantageous exchange between a buyer and a seller, the, the, the relationship you started with in your first comment. Yet, as we sort of move upstream in our curriculum and prepare students for the jobs that they're being asked to do immediately upon graduation and beyond, those things are much more skill-oriented and tactical tactics oriented like we want you know our, our employers are coming to us and say we want students to be able to run f targeted facebook campaigns in their first job or you know use google analytics to do x y and z to optimize our website in some way right off the bat and we are helping build these tools what kind of ethical frameworks or thinking should we as educators be bringing into our classes to help prepare students for kind of the responsibility of what they're being asked to do. Or am I even framing that question incorrectly? I'm trying to well, get to something eloquent. Yeah, we we, we got to start here somewhere. Um, right at, at the beginning, we mentioned consent as being important. Yeah. We can add a few layers to that. Um, so there's a notion, uh, FPIC, free, prior, and informed consent. So it's not just that you say yes. It's not just that you um, agree to the cookies or you click on the purchase. Um, that move has to be made freely. 
uh, it has to be informed. You have to know what you're agreeing to, and you have to be you have to know that before you actually make any click or um, search for any terms or mm -hmm. leave a data trace. Um, and it's really clear that in these data sets that are being gathered by Facebook uh, and others, I think none of those conditions are met. Um, I mean, is it free when that's really, that is your platform that you're going to do your web searches and that you're going to make some of your purchases? Um, is it informed when you really don't know what data is being gathered? Uh, and when you attempt to find out what data is being gathered, you have to go through uh, a whole set of layers. Um, and is it prior when um, the trace is already laid before you realize you were involved in any sort of transaction? So just by being on the web, you're laying this trace. So if, if we look at consent and say, all right, let's deepen it, let's thicken it, let's come to understand uh, the richest kind of notion of consent, and we think about those ideas of free, prior, and informed, it's really questionable whether any of those conditions are being met. Do we have a responsibility as marketers to gain consent? I mean, where does consent even lie in, this, in, this, in, in a business transaction? Well, if there's no consent, then there's some form of manipulation or deception going on. And, okay. You know, just on the surface, those by two definition, are be wrong. ethically, by definition, it, it sounds like it, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it sounds like it to me <laughs> the way you're laying it out. Consent, if you like, sort of uh, cleans the ethical conscience. Well, I I didn't make the person do it. They well, I mean, I guess it. I guess what I'm getting at, like, do I need to give consent to be marketed to, or do I need to? I mean, if if I engage in a transaction, it's clear to me that I should be. I should be in, I should be giving consent to part ways with my own money. Yeah, can I? I mean, so there are a couple examples. I mean, first of all, I think that's a really interesting uh, framework that we can use to like look at consent. You know, so let's let's talk through some examples. So Gmail, right? Um, I use Gmail. I love Gmail. It's a great client. Um, I am client. That's <laughs> is that a fancy word for product? Uh, yeah, a place where you get your email, basically. Yeah, yeah, okay. um, we got to avoid know, jargon here on the podcast, John. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, electronic mail. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, so uh, I'm free in the sense that, you know, I could go use a different email provider. Um, I think informed, Gmail would say I am informed, although I think we would question that. You know, when you sign up, there is a set of terms and conditions, and you scroll for 30 seconds, and then you get to the bottom, and you click OK. 30 seconds? <laughs> if you're a fast scroller. Three. Oh, yeah, that's true. It may not take. It depends on the product. But some of them actually take quite a long time to get to the bottom of. Right. Um, and then uh, prior, right? So like that, that moment of giving over all of your data, you know, to let Google read all your email, to let Google see where you're checking your email, uh, to let Google know who you're connected to. Um, that, you know, from a Gmail perspective, that begins when you click OK and set up your Gmail account. Um, How can one possibly know when you set up your Gmail account that that is what you're consenting to? Nobody can, I would argue. Um, you know, I think legally they are probably covered in some definition of informed consent, but obviously there's a, a big difference there. Yeah. Um, and then those terms and conditions get updated regularly, right? And um, you're free to go to the website and print them out on 30 pages of paper and read them. <laughs> um, so what would, you know, sort of this free, prior, and informed consent look like for a company that was going to provide email as a service, but then for free, uh, for no cost to consumers, 
but then use that data for marketing? Like what would be a better, a more ethical email search, like way to operate? But the, the last phrase you use, the comma, but use that data for marketing. Yeah. Okay. I was signing up for an email service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't sort of signing up to be mined for a bunch of data that would then become useful. Right. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it should at the very least be clear that I'm not just signing up for an email service. I'm signing up to lay part of my life bare to somebody who will later on try to pitch things to me. Yeah. What if they had an option where you could pay $10 a month for Gmail or you could have it for, fr- you know, for free but give up all your data? Would that be a more ethical approach to email? It, it sounds like it would be an improvement as long as the person who was getting it for free really understood what was involved. And that's where the opacity comes back in. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think it's almost impossible to understand exactly what you're giving up and exactly how it's going to be used. I mean, we're getting more familiar with that now. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, since the Cambridge Analytica deal, people are a little bit sensitized to this, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, we saw, you know, when the Cambridge Analytica news broke, you saw some people with this sort of outcry, like, I can't believe that Facebook is running experiments on people and using my data. I was surprised by that outcry. Um, You know, but I'm so close to it. I mean, is it reasonable for someone to think that an internet company is providing all of this useful functionality and not making money on it somehow? I mean, people don't think Facebook's a nonprofit, right? Well, and then they think that, oh, yeah, these companies are just making money off of the advertising. Yet they don't really connect those dots to understand how powerful this ability to target and serve very specific ads to specific people at specific moments mm-hmm. can be. You know, and that's maybe something that we can pivot into is this this sort of asymmetry in the power dynamics. I mean, these platforms, Google, Facebook, et cetera, they provide tremendous persuasive power mm-hmm. to marketers. And is that, I mean, one of the themes of your book, The Synthetic Age, or you study these, 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 these topics where kind of the fundamentals have shifted, right, with climate. Like we've shifted into this moment where humans have agency over climate that they never had before, whether intentional or by accident. Ha- have data science and the tools of marketing sort of transitioned into a reality where the power structure decidedly favors the seller in a way it never has before? I think if I'm being psychologically profiled, and I don't really know how that profile is being put together, and I don't willingly offer that profile up, then I think we're in a new game. Like, this is a new world. Okay. Uh, and, you know, as you said at the beginning, um, there's great power and there's great responsibility there. Uh, I think there's a lot of catching up that needs to happen for people to realize that this profiling is happening and that marketing is being targeted at them based on that profile. Uh, I think the gap between you know what someone like John understands what's going on and what someone like I understands is massive. I, I think it would be easy to forget how big that gap is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have, you know, 20 years of sort of working in the trenches in this and so have, I think, absorbed, yeah, I think absorbed kind of what's going on uh, in a way. I mean, you know, the place in my career where I felt kind of the worst about this, I guess, um, the last uh, job that I had at Microsoft, I was research director for Microsoft TV, and we were essentially using uh 
information of TV, people's television viewing habits to arbitrage inventory. So we would buy... Explain what that means. Yeah, yeah, we would buy TV ads for really cheap, and then we would turn around and sort of repackage that inventory and sell it to advertisers uh, at a much higher rate. And so that was kind of how we made money. And part of doing that was I had every remote control click for about 3 million households. Uh, this was kind of our footprint to make all the sort of extrapolations from the data. On the Microsoft TV platform or on uh, cable platform? No, yeah, like- people who just signed up. So, you know, in Missoula back then, it was Bresnan Cable. I think that was in my footprint, right? Oh, so yeah. I don't know that... And this is 10 years ago? Yeah, this was probably know. 2000... Uh, it's probably seven years ago. So seven years ago, cable companies are measuring every push of a button on your remote control. Exactly. Device. And that's still happening today. Right. But yeah. like, think of what's more happening. If that's oh. happening seven years ago, that level of granularity and data, yeah. I mean, it's just grown exponentially since then. And, you know, I was certain that the terms and conditions that people had, uh, you know, signed or checked a box when they signed up for cable covered our butts legally. But I knew that there was no chance that anyone on the other side of that remote control knew the data I was looking at. And it was anonymized. You know, I didn't know the person's name. I didn't know where they lived. Um, But it was still, and you know, and I think TV viewership is less intimate than many other things we do uh, on the internet. But I still felt like that sort of walked across that sort of creepy line um, in a way that I was uncomfortable with. Uh, And certainly it was not consent in any meaningful sense of consent. A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Okay, special announcement coming up on March 8th is the 30th annual John Raffato Business Startup Challenge. This competition, hosted by the Blackstone Launchpad and the College of Business at the University of Montana, will feature 12 elite student teams pitching new and exciting business ideas to a panel of 50 hand-picked judges in a crowd made up of over 300 business professionals and Montana community members. Teams compete for up to $50,000 in awards while having the opportunity to network with venture capitalists, early-stage investors, investment bankers, economic developers, corporate executives, and successful entrepreneurs. Come be inspired by the new generation of Montana entrepreneurs. Tickets are $15 and available online through the John Raffato Business Startup Challenge website. We'll post a link to that website in the show notes. Check out this event. It's my favorite of the year. I'm Larry Summers, Harvard President Emeritus and former Treasury Secretary. You're listening to A New Angle. We sort of look at, you know, what's happening in current politics with President Trump. And like one of the things that happens is the lie is just, well, not the lie, but like the, you know, he obstructs justice out in public. Right. It's just maybe harder for our legal system to adjudicate because it's happening in front of Lester Holt instead of in a closed door on a recording like with with Nixon. Mm -hmm. But in this case, like, you know, we we have all these, you know, front page stories, Pulitzer Prizes about what's going on with the NSA. Yet Google, Facebook, these companies are doing it in plain sight, sort of. Mm -hmm. They're doing it all around us. And we're theoretically, well, I don't even think theoretically consenting, but blindly acquiescing to it in some way. Um, and people don't really, at the end of the day, seem to care that much. Like, I bring this up with students. They're like, yeah, yeah, Facebook, you know, it's kind of fun. Or, yeah, I like Gmail. It works for me. And they don't think they don't think much about the, 
the, yeah. the being profiled and being sold stuff based on that and, and all of that. I mean, you know, I had an example that I used to use. Um, you know, so imagine that you're on a business trip to a place you've never been and you could pay 50 cents to see four two minute videos of restaurants in your area that had been sort of chosen for you. I would have paid to see that advertising, right? I'd be interested in like picking a better restaurant. This was in the ages before Yelp or something like that. Uh, I had a student mention just the other day that when he is looking for a certain piece of merchandise, he's excited when it surfaces for him, you know, through Google or Facebook because it saves him time. So you have people at one end of the spectrum like that, others who are saying, you know, is there, is there any ethical marketing? What would ethical marketing look like? And I posed this question to a group of students on Wednesday, uh, and, you know, people said, okay, PSAs. If you are trying to get uh, people to stop smoking, to not use meth, something like that, then just, you know, using data to market to those people to try to get them to do something that's good for them and good for society, they considered that ethical. Would you... What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, that there is such a thing as, as doing good with marketing. Um, I think a cynical line is crossed when you have been profiled by a data set in such a way that your weakness can be targeted. So mm-hmm. there's this idea here that um, the, uh, the marketer might know more about you than your friends know about you or even than you know about yourself. Absolutely. Uh, and so if that data set is being enabled so that it can press those buttons that you don't know about, that where your biggest weaknesses are, uh, and it can trip you into behavior that uh, is um, perhaps in, in some sense unavoidable or, or unchosen or less chosen or something like that, then it seems to me that the cynical line has been crossed. And, and why? Well, you reflect back on the idea of consent. The consent is compromised a little bit because it's not a completely free consent because you've been put into a corner mm-hmm. and your weakness has been exposed and something's been presented to you that will take advantage of that weakness. And so suddenly it's, it's not quite as wholesome as the PSA announcement. So if I go out with you for beers and I've had two beers, which is the number that I was planning on drinking, and then the bartender comes up and says, hey, do you want to get another beer? Uh, we just got this new one in. It looks it's just the kind of stuff that you would like. That person suggesting the other beer, I mean, they are, they are preying on me in a moment of weakness. Is that unethical behavior? It's an interesting question. You know, my wife's a non-drinker, as you know, uh, and, and she'll say to me sometimes, don't offer people another drink. Hmm. Um, you're crossing a line. If they want another drink, they'll say, can I have another drink? So my aggressive hospitality is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> you're not aggressive, John. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, suggestion, I think, that um, sort of pushing putting something in front of somebody's face mm-hmm. where they are, you know, prone to a certain type of answer or a certain yeah. type of response. I think there's a case to be made that that is unethical, yeah. So if we look back on marketing, you know, in the 60s or something, right, where, uh, you know, some message like, you deserve to have this nice car, or you deserve to have this fancy watch, right? That is preying on weaknesses, um, but in aggregate. Is that, you know, is that sort of form of persuasion? Well, first of all, is that form of persuasion unethical? Follow-up, is persuasion ethical? Yeah, exactly. Can you just tell me the answer? I'd love to, I'm ready to write <laughs> yeah, it down. Yeah, 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 yes, no. 
I, I don't think I can. I don't think I can manage that. But I mean, if if you look into that message, you deserve X or you deserve mm-hmm. Y. It's an it's an extraordinary message. Yeah, it, it comes with a load of assumptions, uh, and it is clearly manipulative. It wants to put you in a place where you're you have a knee jerk reaction, which is like, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. And yes, I should have that thing. I want to be cool. I want to be well liked. Maybe if I buy this thing. That'll be more likely. Or it might even be that, yes, I do work hard. And yes, I feel like I uh, do deserve this. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't even have to be, it doesn't have to be a shallow motive of, of wanting a certain type of standing. It, it could be a motive that is based in your own perception of your hard work. But it's an extraordinary setup, really. I mm-hmm. mean, as a non-marketer, and mm-hmm. I, I might, well, I know I am speaking to two people here who are much more immersed in the field. It's an extraordinary setup where you are put on this platform from which you can only topple, it seems. Say more about that. Yeah, yeah, talk more about that. <laughs> well, you're, you're set up and put in a, a position where um, the, the purchasing or the buying or the taking or the, mm. the getting what you're being uh, set up for is the likely outcome. And the, the sort of pivoting around and saying no... I don't want to be here. I don't want to take that leap. That is becomes less and less likely the more okay. powerful that message is. And, and of course, for a marketer, that's fantastic. That's your business. So we're backing customers into a corner is what you're saying. Well, and also there's no way out, right? Like once that message has been delivered, you can either buy the product, uh, so the marketer wins, or you can feel slightly worse about yourself. Like, oh, I get, maybe I don't deserve this thing or I don't have enough self-care. Well, you, I mean, to the, to the point of consent, you can reject the premise. Just say right. this is a foolish message that doesn't apply to me. The next time you go to a Super Bowl party and watch people watch the ads, ask yourself how many are rejecting the premise of the ads. Yeah, probably N equals one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe two. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I, I pose this question to students, like, can you be an ethical marketer? You know, and so what could we, I mean, can we lay out kind of what that might look like? Um, So if you have a business and you're trying to sell people accounting software, you could use Facebook to reach accountants in your sort of target income demographics or something like that. Um, Um, You know, as you're laying that out there, John, I mean, you could, you can keep pulling the lens back further and further and further in terms of, you know, this this issue of consent and human interaction. I mean, we had mm-hmm. this episode a, a while back with Vanessa Gregoriata. She studies um, sexual assault on college campuses and, and, and the notion of consent, the definition of consent. And it makes me think of this, this, this fundamental, I don't know if fundamental is the right word, but like the relationship between two people. And do they engage, you know, in a sexual relationship? Is there attraction there? And then part of that process is potentially some form of persuasion. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, and what we're getting at is, is persuasion permissible in our society? I mean, it seems like it's fundamental to much of how our society operates, but is it, is it, is it at its core something we shouldn't engage in? Is it flawed from the start? Is that... Yeah, Does that resonate? You know what I'm talking about? What's the about? line between persuasion and manipulation? Right? Is there a line? Is there a line, or are they just two sides of the same coin? 
I think we can revert to the free prior and informed consent <laughs> okay. <mantra> again. <laughs> I think it's useful. Um, because you, you can ask, well, how free, how prior, and how informed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think um, one can assess whether uh, th- there's an adequate amount of freedom, uh, an adequate amount of information, and an adequate amount of advanced consideration of, of the topic. Uh, and if there is, then, you know, some form of marketing or persuasion seems appropriate. But I think you very quickly bump up against those limits where there isn't enough of any of those three conditions mm-hmm. and it has become unethical. Does all of this just descend into this debate between free will and determinism? Is that like at the core of a lot of what philosophers think about? Well, it's definitely, it's in the background of this one. Exactly. Right. I feel like we're sort of descending to that primary condition is, is there such thing as free will? Right. You know, is, is, is just like rolling a piece of steak out in front of a lion is that unfair? Doesn't really seem that unfair unless you're trying to get that line to do something that walk into not, a trap. Exactly. So I don't know where this leaves us, guys. I don't feel so much better about the way I am going to approach my teaching. I'm, you could do what I do and just hide behind the techniques. Um, so you know, for me, it was always fun math problems. You yeah, know, I never, exactly. There's a line building I, the tool. Yeah, and I can't remember who said this line, but you know, the best minds of my generation are teaching are tricking people to click on ads. Yeah. You know, and I mean that's that's really depressing. It's really depressing. And there's, you know, uh there's a lot of truth to that, I think. Well, then you look at kind of how these look at how Facebook has evolved. And you know, it's just one perspective is that it's this pretty cool tool for keeping in touch with people. Mhm. And it's very useful. I mean, we can see that people have bought into that platform and being able to keep in touch with their friends and share information and all that. And that has value, probably monetizable value. Mm -hmm. But the way they've chosen to monetize it is this harvesting of individual data to profile and serve them more effective ads to make them buy stuff. It didn't have to go that way. Yeah. You know, so so one thing we can think about in 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 our work here as educators is, you know, can we help students foresee the pathways that the creation of new ideas and new products and new services, you know, how they could come into being years down the road? Mm-hmm. What choices should they be thinking about? What or what decisions should they be making to, you know, if, if you have an idea for a social media company like a Facebook, how can you avoid it becoming a platform for harvesting? data and selling ads. Well, I mean, you know, so we're in the world of commerce, right? So there is going to be revenue and costs and you're trying to make a profit. Right. So, you know, I mean, this idea of like charging for Gmail, like having the option, you know, there are a couple different ways we could go here. One is charging for the products. So you're just going to pay Facebook a monthly fee and that allows you to opt out of your data harvesting, similarly for Gmail or something like that. Um, Another option, and I'm not sure what the kind of latest on this is, but the idea that your data is yours and you can choose, you can be the seller of your data rather than Hmm. Google or Facebook being the seller of your data. So a lot of the sort of blockchain ideas on how the blockchain might disrupt search and identity and banking um, come from this idea where you you could own and then sell, you know, for a limited time perhaps, uh, your data in order to participate in this marketplace. Uh, 
clearly that's better in terms of the free prior and informed. Um, and I think it adds a dimension to the freedom piece, right? The, my best alternative to Gmail, I don't like very much. So am I free to choose something else? Sure, um, but I would rather be able to pay Google for it and not have my data participate. You know, similarly, Google Maps, right? I, I mean, Google is the leading company in the world in terms of understanding you know, streets, addresses, and location. Uh, and I don't want to give up Google Maps, but I would like some more control over uh, my experience with it. Hmm. The idea of an Internet Bill of Rights is circulating around a little bit yeah, now, yeah. And, um, mm -hmm. especially since uh, the, the Democrats have a majority in the House now. And I think one of the things such a bill could do is it could um, shift the burden, the expectation. Um, I think it's pretty clear at the moment that uh, the, the, the sort of base assumption is that the data is in the hands of the company who are providing you the service. Um, and in that Bill of Rights could shift that presumption uh, so that the data is in your hands. And it's up to you to agree to make that data accessible or available. Mm -hmm. And you might freely choose to do so. You might even freely choose to do so in a very informed way and prior to <laughs> anything going on. But right now, the, the burden is in the wrong place. The presumption is on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice to see that change, I think. I mean, do you think the internet, Christopher, is fundamentally different than other technological innovations in human history? Do you think that it's just enabled a speed of change and in innovation that's, that's unique, and we've l let it get ahead of steam without us being able to be thoughtful enough? Or have other technologies done the same thing? Is this a pattern that's being repeated right now, maybe just faster? No, I think it's pretty clear that it is different. Okay. I mean, it's in your house, and it engages with so many different aspects of your life, your search for news, your search for Christmas gifts, uh, your search for entertainment. Um, suddenly, you've got all these elements of your life uh, that you are pursuing uh, with the expectation that it's just you uh, screening through something or clicking on something. But it's not just you. It's you plus the people harvesting your data. Yeah. This is radically new. This is, this is not a condition that the human has lived in before. So I think it is, it's a technology that has really changed everything. It's put the whole notion of privacy under scrutiny. Uh, and it should cause consumers to really think hard about what they're giving up. And how do you think about privacy? I mean, what does that even mean? Is that... Is that some? Is that a right? Is that? I mean, that part of this is a bit of a legal question too. But philo philosophically, like, what is what is this concept of privacy, and how should we be thinking about it? Well, we we have sort of boundaries around ourselves, and we ought to be able to uh, give permission for elements to cross those boundaries and get out in the public domain. And so, privacy is the ability to maintain that boundary okay. and to keep things within that personal domain until you choose not to. Um, and so that's, the, that's what the internet has made possible in a way that, that is really hard for a consumer to understand that those boundaries are now permeable. Mm. Uh, and they're, they're not permeable in a way that the consumer has consented to or even understands 
uh, ha- the ways they're permeable. Um, but they, they just are. And, uh, you know, the Internet, it's, it's not only in our homes, it's in our pockets when we walk around town. It's when we search for that restaurant. Uh, and so all these different elements of our lives uh, now are not bounded anymore. Um, as soon as they uh, leave our minds and, and go through our fingers in that little tap or that click, uh, it's now the privacy uh, is over. It's now public. Well, and I think, you know, people also have this expectation. You know, it might be one thing, okay, I'm going to do a search on Google. Google is going to know that I searched for this thing, or I'm going to like something on Facebook. Facebook is going to know that I liked it. Like, I think there are some people who kind of understand that. But then as that data is sort of packaged up and resold, so going back to the Cambridge Analytica example, part of the outrage was what Facebook was doing, right? Learning about us, sort of poking us where we're weak and persuading us. Another part of it was that data data being harvested moved off of Facebook and you could be used potentially by anybody. Right. Um, and then you have the persistence aspect, right? Like now these companies have the ability for you to delete, you know, theoretically all of your data. Both companies allow that. Um, but I'm not sure if that's trustworthy. Yeah, there's really no reason why we should believe that claim. Yeah. Right? History would prove that foolish. Right. And I mean, I think the next, you know, I mean, you asked about is the internet sort of different in kind or different in degree? Yeah, I would agree, sort of clearly in kind. I think the next revolution, and we don't need to go down too far down this rabbit hole, but it is going to be genomic data, right? Yeah, Gene sequencing. I mean, and if you have your DNA sequenced by Ancestry or 23andMe, uh, they own that sample. And uh, what we can do with g- DNA today versus what we can do with it in 20 years is going to be radically different. Mm-hmm. That's one of the themes in Synthetic Age, if, I, if I'm correct. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. we got to kind of try to kind of land this conversation, but I really appreciate you two being willing to kind of just wade through this with me. Welcome to the quagmire. Uh, yeah. It feels good to be here, sort of. Um, so we are kind of experiencing a bit of a existential discussion at the University of Montana about, you know, what is it that we're trying to do here? And our president keeps persisting. He, he uses this, um, this line, the power is in the and, meaning, you know, we have professional programs like the College of Business. We have very strong liberal arts traditions and programs here as well. And, I, you know, I'm thinking this is an area where an education like what we are trying to construct here at the University of Montana could really answer the questions. How can we collaborate better, Christopher, on on making sure that our students are prepared for this new age that we're in with regard to the internet, digital commerce, the world that they're going to be living in and facing that's very different from that of their parents? Well, I obviously have a bias as an ethicist, right? But you right. Know, it's, it's pretty clear from this conversation today that in your very first marketing class or in your very first data analytics class, somebody should be saying there's ethics involved here. Mm-hmm. And somebody should be laying out some of the components of the ethics. And whether that's the, the professor themselves or whether it's uh, somebody else who comes in from a different department to talk about it, it seems... Are you volunteering yourself to well, come talk I, in my I, freshman I, class next fall? I kind of am, I oh, guess. Oh, yeah, I like it. Whoever it is, it, <laughs> the student needs to have that in their mind from the get-go. Right. Because once the student has spent two-thirds of a semester 
figuring out what is the best tool to persuade people to purchase something, it's harder to insert the ethics later on. It becomes a game that's fun to play for Mm -hmm. students. Right. For practitioners, too. And then you sort of can keep your head in the sand. Yeah. So I think uh, uh, it's incumbent upon people teaching methods and tactics in these sort of very powerful uh, types of disciplines to be reminding students that, that there are ethical questions to think about, social questions to think about, questions of justice, questions of privacy, fairness, uh, right from the beginning. And, and keep reminding them through the semester. I think that would, that would go some distance to what's helping. Right. I like the recursive nature, too, of applying free, prior, and informed to the conversation of ethics. It should start from the very beginning and get out in front of it versus, I mean, you know, like I feel like in my classes, you know, I sort of interleave it throughout, but the amount of time I spend on, oh, here's a really cool bit of math versus let's have a deep conversation about ethics uh, is probably 10 to 1. And it's amazing how many people like the ethics once you open up the can of worms. Mm-hmm. People love to be in there. Like you said, they like the weeds. Oh, yeah. I mean, the co- once you get into the conversations, they're really deep. And it makes for really rich classroom experiences. It's tough for students sometimes because there's no right and wrong answers necessarily. Like students kind of like that clarity, especially on anything that gets graded, right? Um, but that could be the beauty of this is that, you know, we force students to think about something where the answers are somewhat emergent and they have to make choices about what those answers are. Right. And emergent is not the same as no right or wrong. True. I mean, it can become clear that, yes, this is problematic. Mm-hmm. This right. is manipulative. Uh, and so you're right, you know, ethics is intimidating sometimes because it seems a little wishy-washy. It's not so mathematical. It's not a precise discipline, as Aristotle said. But that doesn't mean to say it, it doesn't get you anywhere. Um, some pretty clear answers can emerge. Right. Well, those answers are, I think, have not emerged in my own brain yet, but hopefully with some reflection and maybe some more conversations with the two of you, we'll uh, we'll get closer. Guys, uh Always fun, mind-blowing to, uh, to catch up with you guys and, and share your thoughts and wisdom. And uh, yeah, thanks for waiting through this with me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Justin. All right, coming up next week, we have Peter Coffey, very appropriate follow-up guest to this week's episode. Peter is the Vice President of Strategic Research at Salesforce.com. He's a futurist. He's a technologist. His job is to think about a lot of the stuff that John and Christopher and I talked about in this last uh, episode. So look forward to bringing you that conversation next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you all know that they're big and they pretty much sell everything electrical you would ever need. But what you might not know is that they hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about job opportunities at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Comzar, Elizabeth Willey, executive producer, Stefan Borsum, producer, Aidan Morton, and interns, Aspen Runkle, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go... If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.